Surely the most uh, precious of all the promises of Scripture to the Christian is to be found in the book of Hebrews, the 13th chapter, where God says to His people, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the word forsake means to abandon or to uh, disown or to disinherit. To desert someone is to forsake them. And God has promised that He will never forsake us. But that promise, in order for God to make it to us, cost God everything. It cost Him His very own Son, the Son of His love, in order to be able to make that promise to us. Uh, We who are guilty and yet have looked to Christ for forgiveness of our sins, we can claim that promise that God will never forsake us only because there is one who was innocent, who came on our behalf and was forsaken, forsaken for us. And so it's to the forsaking of the Messiah, God's abandoning of His Son for our sakes, that we will turn our attention this morning. And we're going to spend most of our time together in uh, Psalm 22 this morning. But before we do that, uh, we must just remind ourselves of the details of the crucifixion. And uh, in order to do that, I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 27. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him, driving nails through his hands and his feet, and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, and now he quotes Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and another on the left, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, shaking their heads at him, and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the King of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with these same things. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there, when they heard that, said, This man is calling for Elijah. 
Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Such is the account of the death of our Savior. And I wonder if you will just open with me in prayer as we begin. Father, by the Spirit of Christ Himself, Lord, we declare Your name here this morning. You are God Almighty. You are the Creator of the heavens and the earth, God, and You are the Redeemer of Your people. We praise You this morning, God. You are our Father. We fear You, God. We revere You. We glorify Your name here this morning, Lord. Lord, You have raised Your Son from the dead, and we rejoice in that because in Him we find life, Lord. Lord, we remember You here this morning, and we turn to You with our hearts and our minds. and We worship You. Yours is the kingdom, God. You rule over the nations. You are righteous. And God, all that You do is good. God, please help us this morning to see what You have done. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, with the exception, perhaps only of Isaiah chapter 52 and 53, Psalm 22 is the most astonishing prophecy of the coming Messiah. The first half of that Psalm 22 speaks of the forsaking of the Messiah by His Father. It speaks of the desperate loneliness of the Messiah on the cross. And how, though God had always delivered His people in the past when they trusted in Him, yet for the Messiah, though He trusted perfectly in His Father, for Him there was no help, no deliverance, no one to hear His cries. It speaks of how those who looked upon Him hanging there despised Him and ridiculed Him and mocked Him and shook their heads at Him. It speaks of how the thoughts of the Messiah on the cross were turned to how he had always trusted in his God, even from his mother's womb. His entire life had depended upon God, and, and according to his human nature, how God had always been his God. And yet, now in the hour of his trouble, there was none to help. And it speaks of how everyone around him, as he was being crucified, hated him and were raging at him. And how his physical body was weakened and brought to the dust of death through flogging and crucifixion. And then it speaks of how as he died, they stared at him and they cast lots, basically rolling dice, to see who would get his clothing. All of this was prophesied a thousand years before Jesus was even born by David 
in the 22nd Psalm, in the first half of that Psalm. And that the section at the end of that first half closes with the Messiah's crying out again with the loneliest voice in the universe that he might be delivered and receive help from the sword of his enemies. But then the second half of that psalm begins, and there's a change. It, it suddenly breaks into a rejoicing and a praise that although the Messiah would die, yet his cries for deliverance would still be answered on the third day, as it turns out. And it goes on to then speak in the second half of Psalm 22 of how the church would then be formed and how the Messiah, through the sending of the Holy Spirit, would fill His church with God's praises throughout all generations. And this is David prophesying. He sees the formation of the church and the filling of the church with the praises of God by the Messiah who comes to His church after His resurrection in the person of the Spirit. This church, which in fact itself was the joy that was set before Jesus, for which He willingly endured the cross. All of that in the 22nd Psalm. And so let's be looking out for some of those themes as we now read the 22nd Psalm together. To the chief musician, set to the deer of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and am not silent. But you are holy. See how the Messiah doesn't question his suffering and the abandonment of his father. He continues to trust in the midst of his suffering. You are holy. Enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. It's an amazing thought that the Pharisees, and the scribes, and the elders of the people of the Jews, they knew the Bible. And yet, they used the very words that David had prophesied to mock the Messiah. It's staggering. The hardness of our hearts of people. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. 
You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. The dis- dislocation of his joints hanging on a cross. And my heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue clings to my jaws. I thirst, Jesus cried on the cross. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword. My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild ox. And then begins the second half of the psalm where on the third day God hears the cries and comes and delivers His Son from this great hardship that He had to go through. You have answered me. I will declare Your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise You. You who fear the Lord, praise Him, all you descendants of Jacob whom we are, glorify Him and fear Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him, but when He cried, He heard Him. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly, says Jesus to His Father. I will pay my vows before those who fear Him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. May that apply to us here this morning. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before Him. Before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's. And He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before Him. Even He who cannot keep Himself alive. Every single person, even if they reject Christ, they can't keep themselves alive. And when they die, they will bow before Jesus and they will worship Him. Every tongue will confess A posterity shall serve Him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born. That prophecy is being fulfilled here this morning. That He has done this. 
that he's done all of this, it'll be declared generation after generation. Of all of the mysteries of our faith, surely the Trinity is the most profound. God is one. There's only one God, and yet within His being are three persons, three distinct persons. The Father is not the Son or the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father or the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit or the Father. They are distinct persons. They are not each other. And yet, they fully contain and completely interpenetrate one another. They share a single essence. Whenever uh, one is doing something or wherever one is, the other two persons of the Trinity are always spoken of in Scripture as being there. The Son contains the fullness of the Father and the Spirit within Himself. It's one of the ways we know Jesus is God. Only God can contain God fully. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And the same could be said of each of the other persons of the Trinity fully containing the other two within themselves. There is only one God, and yet He has three persons within His being. I mean, it is a profound mystery. But, you know, why should it seem unlikely that God would be mysterious to us as creatures? Why should that seem unlikely to us, that God would be mysterious? Truly, there is mystery in God. And yet, it has pleased God through His own kindness to create us and to condescend Himself by way of covenant to enter into relationship with us. And within that relationship, God has chosen to reveal to us who He is. He does that through creation. He does that through our own beings, being made in His image. And He does it primarily through the Scriptures. And so though we cannot fully comprehend God, He is mysterious to us, and our rational categories can't make sense of all this, Yet, to the extent which He has revealed Himself to us, we can truly know Him. The Westminster Confession of Faith describes the Trinity like this. In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Ghost eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. So notice they say that the Father is of none. Uh, theologians use a Latin term to describe this. 
um, the words a say. The word a in Latin means from, say means himself. So God the Father is of himself. He needs no explanation. He has no cause. He is the explanation of himself. He is a say, from himself. He is neither begotten nor proceeding, they say. The Son, however, is begotten of the Father. And yet, unlike the Arians said in the early church there was a a Christological heresy where a group of people said that there was a time in eternity past when the Father had not begotten the Son yet, and that at a certain point He begot the Son. And so there was a certain time when God was not a Father. That cuts against the teaching of Scripture. Scripture represents Jesus as being co-equal with the Father, equally eternal with the Father. And that's why they use the term here, the Son is eternally begotten. There was never a time when He was not begotten of the Father. Why is that important? Because the very nature of God, the very essence of who He is, is He is a Father. That cannot be said of the Muslim God who is a unity. You cannot explain personhood and love and family and everything that permeates this world, if God is a unity. No, God is not a unity. His essence is to be a Father. And then they go on to say that the Holy Ghost is equally eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. There was never a time when the Spirit, this third person, hadn't been proceeding from the Father. And if you go and read the Nicene Creed, um, there's some strange language, and you see how the the men that drafted the Creed of Nicaea were, were struggling to, 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 to put this in language that could help us understand it. And that's why they use the language uh, that the sun is, is, is light from light. You know, where there's light, light is proceeding all the time. You can't have light without light. So he's light from light. He's very God from very God. Begotten, not created. Because he was eternally begotten can see how they were struggling with it. When you think of the ultimate reality of all things in this universe, what explains everything that is in this universe? When you think of that, you can really only explain things one of two ways. Either a living, spiritual, infinitely intelligent and powerful God is the explanation of himself and, therefore, the explanation of everything else that exists in the universe. Everything that is impersonal, like rocks and trees and stars and planets, and the explanation of everything that is personal, like you and me. And, and they all find their explanation because they were created by a personal being. Right? That's your one option. Or, this dead, totally unintelligent, material universe is just a massive accident 
of chemicals bumping into each other, and somehow out of that is the explanation of itself. Either God is a say of himself, the explanation of himself, or the universe is a say, the explanation of itself. And not only that, but then this impersonal universe somehow produces persons. So the personal comes from the impersonal. Now, if if you're here and you're not a born-again Christian, you have never committed yourself to Christ, can I just ask you to be honest with yourself this morning? Which of those two options, when you look into your heart, do you know is true? Which one do you really believe? Then the the Baptist faith and message, which is another confession of faith that the Baptists use nowadays, it's got a wonderful little phrase describing the Trinity or this, this incredible being, this God, which I'd like to read to you. It says, There is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, that means immaterial, and personal being. He's a personal being. It's nature. Now, you cannot be personal unless there are other persons, which makes your personality distinct. He's a personal being. The creator, redeemer, preserver, and ruler of the universe. Why did I emphasize the preserver of the universe? For this universe to continue to function the way it does, there are certain immaterial entities, laws of physics, which cannot be explained if you are a materialist, an evolutionist. You cannot explain the existence of immaterial entities such as the laws of physics. What keeps this universe cohering? Why isn't it a total chaos? Because it's been made by a being that is himself particular in nature and yet a unity. The universe expresses the being of God. The doctrine of the Trinity has always been seen to be the cornerstone of the Christian religion. It is the major doctrine which separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. And it is a crucial doctrine, because without the doctrine of the Trinity, it is impossible to make sense of reality. It's impossible to make sense of ourselves. How is it that we are the way we are? And it's impossible to make sense of the world and the universe we live in. The reason that personality and individuality, particularity and personality, and love and relationships, the reason that those things permeate the universe that we live in, the world that we live in, is because these are the very attributes of God Himself, who created it all. They are an expression of the being of God in His creation. And the greatest expression of God's relational, loving, 
personal, particular nature. The greatest expression of, of that who God is, is to be found in the ones whom he has made in his own image. You are a particular person. You are not the person sitting next to you. And that's not because God wanted to create some whole new category of thing that never existed before, particularity of personhood. No. That would be the case if God was a unitary, a mon monistic whatever being, like the Muslim God. Particularity and personhood would be something foreign to Him. Not to our God. There's always been particularity within the being of God between each of the persons of the Trinity Himself. The Father is a particular person. The Son is a particular person. The Spirit is a particular person. And the reason that you love and long to be loved, and the reason that you know and long to be known, and the reason that you hear and long to be heard, and long to be understood, is, is not because God did something completely foreign to Himself when He made you. No, God has made you in His own image. And these personal, relational characteristics that define us as humans are explainable only in that we have been made in the image of God. And he has, within the persons of his very being, always loved perfectly and been loved perfectly. He has always known perfectly and been known perfectly. He's always heard perfectly and been heard perfectly. God is love. That is the very essence of who God is. But you cannot love or be loved unless there's someone to love and someone to be loved by. And so God is love because God within His very being loves perfectly and is loved perfectly. This is why only the triune God of the Bible can explain the nature of the universe itself with all of its particularity and yet all of its unity, how this whole thing hangs together. It reflects the nature of God Himself. And so the Bible helps us to understand this incredibly mysterious, mind-bogglingly great God. And everything that He has created expresses who He is. The heavens declare the glory of God. And as Paul says in his letter to the Romans, that God's eternal power and Godhead, who He is and what He's like, are clearly seen, says Paul, being understood from the things that are made. We see that we have this incredible God, a trinity, which has always existed perfectly within itself, perfectly satisfied with its own fellowship, within its own love, perfectly joyful within itself. We get glimpses of this mystery throughout the Scriptures. In uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we read this. 
No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. It's one of the members of the Trinity that had, that had to come, and He has declared God to us. And notice that John says, He is in the bosom of the Father. That word bosom means the very heart, the, the seat of all love and intimacy. That's where Jesus is. What is being described here is the infinite love and intimacy that the Father and the Son have had for all eternity. And then in John chapter 16, we're told that the Spirit will glorify the Son by taking what is God's and bringing it to us as church. He will glorify the so that the Spirit glorifies the Son. And then later in John 17, Jesus said to His Father in that great high priestly prayer, He says, I have glorified You, Father, on the earth. I have finished the work which You have given Me to do. And now, O Father, glorify Me together with Yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So the Spirit glorifies the Son, the Son glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies the Son, and then in 1 Peter chapter 4, it talks about the Spirit as being the Spirit of glory Himself. So the Spirit Himself is glorified. So what does all this mean? What does this have to do with our topic this morning? Why, am I, why have we seemed to have digressed in our discussion? You cannot understand the depth of the cry of Christ on the cross. Why have you forsaken me if you don't understand the Trinity? What does it mean that each of the members of the Trinity glorifies the others and is glorified by the others? Well, to glorify someone means to praise their being, to honor their being, and to rejoice in their being. To praise the being of another person, to honor their being, and to rejoice in, in their being, not for anything that you get out of it for yourself, but simply because of who they are. It's so majestic who they are, you rejoice in it. Well, such is the inner life of the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity adores and honors and glorifies and rejoices in the persons of the other two members. They take infinite delight in one another. Tim Keller in his fantastic book, The Reason for God, I would highly recommend you read that book. He calls the Trinity, with all of this active delight within itself, he calls it a dynamic, pulsating dance of love and joy that has been going on for all eternity. A dance of love. God didn't create people because He was lonely. 
He is and always has been perfectly satisfied by the love that exists between the three persons of his being. In fact, it it appears that God created out of generosity. He created out of that love so that others could share in his perfect love and joy. So that others could delight in him as he delights in himself. And it's good that he delights in himself because he is all good. So it all sounds so wonderful, the creation of man so that man could be swept up into the being and delight of God. But then, after God's creation, rebellion. First in heaven, in the angelic ranks, Satan and his legions rebel against God, something we're told very little about in Scripture, actually. And then, of course, through the temptation of Satan, rebellion comes to the ones who were made in God's image. And they disobey Him, they rebel against Him, and the heart of every man coming into the world since then is at enmity with God, rebelling against this God refusing to believe in the one that in their hearts they know. Now, the explanation for the entrance of evil into the universe is an incredibly mysterious thing. And the Bible does help us along. It can't give us all the answers, I'm afraid. But if you have struggled in your life with some deep suffering or you've wrestled with evil and you've experienced much evil in your life, I would encourage you, come and chat to me, come and chat to one of the elders of the church, one of the pastoral staff, and we would delight to perhaps help you work through in a biblical way why God does allow sin and suffering in His world. At the end of the day, we are called to trust Him. We don't know why God has included the things he, he has in His plan. But we do know this, that God represents Himself in Scripture as entirely just, entirely good, entirely trustworthy and faithful. And in the end, He will be vindicated. We, we must trust Him. Now, all of this discussion about the Trinity, the nature of this God, and, and then the entrance of evil, and the, and the problem of evil and suffering in the world, and how we make sense of it, and how God relates to all this evil and suffering, all of this finds its climax in Psalm 22. Because it is just such a trust in the face of evil and suffering that we see modeled for us on the cross. Jesus trusted His Father even while He was being forsaken and abandoned. Something that you will never experience if you have received Christ as your Savior. He was abandoned. And yet He held His trust in this God. Whenever you're questions about why God has allowed certain suffering in your life, when questions arise, how long, O God, why, O God, just remember this, that the most heartfelt, the most innocent, the most heartbreaking, the most unanswered question 
of all eternity was uttered by the Son of God Himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the most precious truth of Scripture. That God did not stand aloof, stand afar off from the sin and suffering of this world, untouched by it. No. He came down. He came down in the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, and He took upon Himself the very worst of it. Abandoned by His Father. And maybe our discussions about the Trinity this morning can give us just a glimpse of the terror and the utter despair that must have fallen upon Jesus as He hung there. And for the first time in all eternity, He was without the love of His Father. The dance of love ripped apart for you. The delightful fellowship of the persons of the Trinity, unnaturally broken apart, causing a loneliness and an abandonment that you and I will never experience. A loneliness and an abandonment which broke the heart of the Father as He crushed His own Son for the sins of the world, that justice could be served. An abandonment that broke the Son's heart as He hung there, bleeding and dying, calling on His Father in His hour of need. And yet, there was no one to help. No answer. He was forsaken. For us. Crushed for our iniquities so that we could be forgiven. Abandoned for me. Abandoned for you. And then we think of how the Spirit's heart was crushed by what was happening to His... his, the, the, the Son of His love. Holding back His help and His comfort as the Son bore the weight of your sin. Holding it back. Longing for the third day when He could again rush upon the Son and raise Him from the dead. And once again, the dance of love could continue. But this time, with you in it. Could I ask you to close your eyes with me as I close in prayer, please? God, it, it almost seems... Lord, an unrighteous thing to address you now, God. We're so in awe of your greatness, Lord. So in awe of your mercy and your grace and your love for us. What can we say but thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus, 
Thank you, Spirit of God, for coming to us. 